When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. This episode of the Birdshot Podcast is presented by Onyx Hunt, Final Rise, and Upland Gun Company. This episode of the show is all about side-by-side shotguns with author Doug Stewart. Thanks for tuning in to episode number 202. All right, welcome back to another episode of the Birdshot Podcast. Thank you for tuning in, everybody. Got a great show coming up for you with Doug Stewart, author of the traditional side-by-side parts one and two. We'll catch up with Doug and do some question and answer coming your way in just a moment. Whew, it's cold out there. Currently four degrees below zero Fahrenheit, that is, outside the Birdshot Podcast studio and going down. Glad to be back with you this week. I was not planning on taking last week off, but a pretty significant blizzard slash winter storm hit us last week and kind of threw a wrench in a lot of my scheduling snowed for pretty much four days straight and honestly a week later it's we've been getting seemingly more snow every day it says we've gone from a very low amount of snow to a lot of snow in a hurry and now of course it's very cold with threats of more wintry weather on the way but anyways we're back and we will get to our interview with doug Shortly, I'm going to keep this brief. It's a pretty long episode this week. I just got a couple things to run by you. Thank you to Patreon patrons, listeners that have chosen to make voluntary contributions to the Birdshot podcast. Your continued support is greatly appreciated. You can learn more about that at patreon.com forward slash birdshot. Signing up there will get you access to some bonus episodes, discounts on Gumleaf USA and Upland Institute, as well as enter you in those monthly giveaways and I'll send you some Birdshot Podcast can coolers and stickers as a little thank you and welcome gift. Again, that's patreon.com forward slash birdshot. I do have the winner to announce of the Upland Institute giveaway. That goes to Andrew, listener out there that submitted a question for the Justin McGrail episodes. And he did opt for the complete video series from Upland Institute. And speaking of giveaways, for the December giveaway, which we'll be drawing for very soon as well, is now going to include a signed set of the traditional side-by-side part one and two signed by author and our guest today, Doug Stewart. Doug graciously offered to give away a set of his books to one lucky winner on the Birdshot podcast. So that will be an option for the monthly giveaway winner in December. 
All Patreon patrons of the Birdshot Podcast are eligible for that giveaway, as well as, similar to what we did with the Upland Institute giveaway, anyone that submitted a question for today's episode will also be thrown into that giveaway. So, again, thanks to Patreon patrons and everybody that submitted questions for today's show. You will have your choice of a one-year subscription to Onyx Elite or the signed book set of the traditional side-by-side part one and two, of which I am currently looking at my copies of those two books, which have been read and referenced many times since Doug has sent them to me. And speaking of Onyx, I will mention that the folks from Onyx reached out to me this week to let me know that the long-awaited and anticipated edition of Onyx to Apple CarPlay and Android Auto has finally launched this week. So if your vehicle is newer than mine and you actually have Android Auto or Apple CarPlay, you can now access Onyx Hunt via your car's onboard system. Many of the newer vehicles have nice screens and navigation and entertainment systems in them. Mine does not. Actually, my 2007 Sequoia, I did put in a Pioneer aftermarket system in it, mainly to get a backup cam when I bought a 10-year-old truck uh, five years ago. That did come with Apple CarPlay, but I'm always having seemingly some kind of issue with my cords or cables or connections or whatever it is. So sooner or later, I'll get a new truck and maybe it'll have Apple CarPlay in it and I can test this out. But for now, those of you that have Apple CarPlay or Android Auto, you're probably going to want to add Onyx to the apps you have available in there. I imagine that would be a pretty slick setup. We all know the benefits and advantages of using Onyx. Now it's even easier and more options available to you, specifically those with Apple CarPlay and Android Auto. Check that out, Onyx Hunt. Okay, I want to jump into today's episode. I will just briefly say that as this episode is airing tomorrow, December 23rd, I want to wish everybody a Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays to you all. Thank you for listening to the Birdshot Podcast. Happy to have you, and I hope you have some plans with family and friends to celebrate, take it easy, maybe get out and do some hunting. I must say, bird hunting has taken a complete nosedive off of my priority list at this point, given the sheer volume of snow out there and the sub-zero temperatures. Last year, I got in a nice little Christmas Eve grouse hunt with my parents and my four-year-old son. However, that will very likely not be happening this year. My last hunt at this point was December 13th, my birthday. It was a really nice walk in the woods, and the next day is when the first blizzard hit, and now we've seemingly been in a winter storm for like the last 10 days or so. So again, have a very Merry Christmas, everybody, and I am definitely planning on checking in with you next week, just before the New Year holiday. So we will talk to you then. For now, we're going to talk to Doug Stewart, author of the traditional side-by-side part one and two, former guest of the show, and really enjoyed having him back on to catch up and answer some listener questions about side-by-side shotguns. So without further ado, let's welcome into the conversation and on to the Birdshot podcast, Doug Stewart. rolling on the birdshot podcast and i am welcoming back for the third time doug back to the birdshot podcast thank you for joining us as always how are you this evening hey i'm doing great and i'm just glad to be back 
Absolutely. We're happy to have you. Author of the traditional side-by-side parts one and two. And we kind of, we had you on two times before to talk about each book individually a little bit. Today, we're going to run a chat about the books a bit and we've got some listener questions and as Doug and I were just chatting before I hit record, we got a big blizzard here in Minnesota today, and the hype was real. It, there's actually legitimate snow out there, and it's a uh, it's a good time to be inside sipping a cool beverage, possibly, and uh, chatting double guns. What do you say, Doug? Well, I think that's great. And uh, let everybody know what atmosphere I'm sitting in here. I'm sitting in my living room. Both of the setters Excellent. are in here in the living room with me. I got a pre-World War, you know, Parker DH crate 20 gauge sitting on my coffee table. And um, I got a little cocktail, some special bourbon. Uh, <laughs> a friend of mine, Billy, sent me from Kentucky. And we're just sitting here. I'm just ready to talk double guns in this great relaxing atmosphere. I love it. I love it. Well, I've got two setters here in the Birdshot Podcast studio with me. And I am uh, I am sipping a, it's a called a snowmaker ale from a local brewery bent paddle pretty fitting uh fitting beer for today after all of the snow blowing and shoveling <laughs> i did today <laughs> oh man and see we're both on the same page like usual yep yep exactly and i should say i do have i've got a couple of uh rfm side by sides 12 and 28 gauge laying nearby they both got a fresh fresh coat of oil on them today how about your parker doug oh yeah it's looking Pristine from 1907. Nice. You said it's a 20 gauge? It's a 20 gauge and it's a DH grade. Um, so it's a special pre-World War gun. What's the, uh, let's let's just kind of, let's just jump in. Like walk me through the, I have a limited familiarity with Parkers. I mean, I've been around them. I, I know a little bit about them, but when you get into the grade stuff, what's the, what's the, the high level conversation around the parker grades dh vh walk me through that well you know they started a trojan Mm -hmm. and then it goes a ph grade then it goes a vh yep and then it goes a dh and a ch and a bh and an a and a double a and and you know on up um so this is a pretty high grade gun and it's just what people don't understand about parkers is is even the VH grades were very well, they were hand-fitted and very well-done guns. Um, like this DH sitting here, it's all hand-engraved, completely hand-fitted. I can't believe all the filing work that's done on it by hand. There's a nice little bead, you know, around the that matches the barrel flats, and it goes, you know, just at yeah. the bottom. Yep. Yep. And and um, it's got a nice sleek stock. It's got really just hand filed, you know, triggers. It's got a elegant little splinter forearm with a snambled tip mm. in the metal insert, and the craftsmanship. And it's just to die for. I mean, compared to the guns that are cranking out now that are machine made. When it comes to the Parkers, as you go up and I know the Trojan, or at least. I, I shouldn't say I know. I think the Trojan is a slightly different gun. Um, you know, it's, it's it has the look of the rest of the Parkers, but it's maybe a little different gun. Then as you go up in grade, 
is it is it essentially kind of engraving and and sort of aesthetic stuff that separates the grades or do the guns change a bit because i in comparison to like i know the fox guns really the sterling worth was like the same gun as the xe grade other than basically the engraving as far as i understand it i would have to say with the american best guns you're correct um you're mostly paying for you know the engraving yeah um, and it depends. I mean, obviously, you know, back in the older guns, like I'm talking about, when you got up in the really high level guns, they'd use, you know, imported English Damascus barrels mm. compared to the lower grades they might've got from Belgium that they were bringing in. Okay. Um, so there is some quality differences, but it's still amazing. Like I said, the fit and finish on a, on a VH, I, I can't believe the metal to metal, the, wood to metal fit yeah um, and parker was very specific about how they balanced the guns so they got incredible balance mm. reliable great trigger pulls and um so i really hold them in very hard re- high regard for american guns yeah and the pre-world war one craftsmanship when we weren't worrying about the almighty dollar is amazing and true gun makers were building them Yep. with an intended purpose that had been from working with Parker since they were teenagers and worked with Parker their whole life. And it reflects in the guns they put out. And that's kind of the way in America, let alone compared to like the English. I mean, their golden era was kind of the most experts say in the 1930s. And they had incredible guns coming out in the 1930s. Yeah. Again, pre so, pre war. That's that's kind of a subtle little thing. If you start looking into the vintage gun world, you'll you'll you know you'll even see that on descriptions of gun listings on say Guns International or something. They'll the seller will will notate it's a you know it's a between between the wars gun or a pre war gun. Yeah. And they're they're implying something there that if you're just walking in cold off the street, you probably have no idea what that means, but essentially kind of the earlier, the better to a certain extent. Well, it really is. Let's think about it. After the great depression, when they were putting these guns out, mm-hmm. it became more automated, obviously, and less, they tried to cut corners and save money where they could. And it reflected in the craftsmanship, of course. And now that I'm an older guy, I used to love fancy engraving and newer guns. And now that I'm an older guy, I like old guns that have some soul to them. They were built by gun makers with an intended purpose. And that, you know, you see some scars in it that, you know, the thing is hunted for a hundred years in the field. Yeah. And the guy, I want a gun that hasn't been abused, but that has been used and it's broken like a comfortable pair of shoes. And, and so it's, it's beautiful. And the gun could tell a lot of stories and I like to continue them and carry them in the uplands, you know, for their intended purpose. Right, right. Yep, that's one of the one of the special things you get with with vintage guns. Whether or not you have any idea what the story of that gun is, you know, it kind of adds to the mystique and mystery a little bit. You can kind of kind of imagine, you know, whatever you want, really. But knowing just knowing that something has existed for that long and uh, has been in the hands of of somebody, you, you like to think it's been been hunted and well cared for right well you do and i have a passion for you know guns i have a passion for the uplands and this adds to my passion yeah 
which anybody does that has a hobby they love. Think about the golfers that have special golf clubs made for them, right? And around here, I got some jeeping buddies. You wouldn't believe the way they deck out their jeeps. Uh, yeah, yeah, I can I can believe it. I see these things on the road. <laughs> yeah. So I'm not any different when I want a special gun that adds to the experience. And I'm hunting with my, my setters add to the experience. So people that are real passionate about their hobbies get a little deeper into them. Yep. And these things make it better. It's not just about killing birds. I mean, we're out there in the beautiful uplands, and we're the guys that'll notice the beautiful terrain and the other wonderful wildlife. And, and this is how I feel about the guns as being part of it. Yeah, that's a, that's a pretty pretty common storyline, like you said, with any hobby, really. I just It's yeah. human nature, whatever it is, we're kind of inclined to go deeper. I think that's a good way to describe it. And that can that can come out or, you know, portray itself in, in any number of ways. You know, it might be, it might be the habitat or the birds for somebody. It's the guns for somebody else. It's the dogs for somebody else. It's a combination of the three for you. It, you know, it's, it, that's a, it's very common and it's part of, part of what makes it fun. Like you said, it adds to your enjoyment and it fuels your passion. And it does. And obviously if people have read my books, I really believe that side-by-sides are the best guns for upland bird hunting. A gun when you're shooting, when the gun is not pre-mounted and you need something that's incredibly balanced and fast to shoot every direction, uphills and downhills, and it has a lot of merits. And we're not talking about guns that are pre-mounted shooting at different clay pigeon sports. And a lot of people confuse that. And that's why I wrote the book and told the difference. And that's why our forefathers were so successful shooting side-by-sides and shot more game than we ever believed could believe because the over and under was actually made first yes that's right and the english chose the side by side over it and they were they shot as a way of living right so that's why i wrote these books uh it's it's merely upland bird hunting i'm not saying they're superior for everything because they're not and obviously other guns work um and so i just have talked about the merits and the differences and uh the enjoyment and how they've added to my experiences and why. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a, again, the, the two books are, and we'll, we'll maybe use this as a segue to kind of touch on each version briefly, but they really are for somebody that's interested in side by sides and what some of those things are that you're talking about. um, These books serve as a great, great reference. I know, I think I talked about this when we had you on the second time, I, I had almost forgot, when you sent me a copy of the second book, just sort of the reference material in there, you know, the charts with respect to chokes and payloads and shot size, there's a lot of, there's a lot of charts and tables and stuff that are just good, quick reference material. And I've since kind of just, I sort of keep them laying here by my desk. And as I'm talking to customers and thinking about guns a lot, I'll, I'll check them off. And so they're, they're great for that. And let's, because it was a long time ago when we had you on for number one and you've kind yeah. of, you've sort of hinted at why you wrote these books, but okay. what, uh, what, what led you to, to book number one? Well, y- you know, I just, I had many people, I was, I was buying guns and I was talking to different dealers and getting to know them good, of course. And they were like, Doug, you know more about these guns than me. You ought to think about writing a book. Because I was telling them, you know, the chamber length it should have for that year of Parker and what it should have and stuff. Mm. They're like, how do you know all this stuff? And I'm thinking, well, I own so many books, it's ridiculous, okay? 
and I've been shooting double guns for over 40 years, and I've had shooting instructions. I mean, it's just ridiculous. And so I said, you know, I don't know how anybody's going to collect all these books I've got. Some of them are out of print. You can't find them to find out all this information. And so I said, I'm going to try to compile it all in two books. Everything everybody needs to know about side-by-sides from buying them, um, how to collect them, and how to shoot them. And then I even got into ballistics and other things, as you well know. So I started out with the first book. It's like building a house. you got to have framework. So I had to take a step back and realize a lot of people don't know the difference between a box lock and a side lock, a trigger plate gun, and why they had double triggers, um, you know, straight stocks and pistol grips. I had to go over all that. I had to go over chokes in general. I had to go over the different gauges because a lot of people are like, well, why would you be carrying a 16 gauge when you could carry a, you know, a 12 gauge or whatever? So I went over all the different gauges. Right. I, I keep stories in there, little stories, and they all have a purpose, okay, with what I'm talking about. And they're all true. They're all my life. They're fun. And so then I got a lot of questions on, you wouldn't believe it on the email and stuff. And they wanted to hear more. After the first book, you're saying. Oh, yeah. 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 They're like, Doug, you know, I want to know about Damascus barrels, if they're safe to use, that I'm seeing them for sale. And I want to know why hammer guns are so special. And so I got more in depth. And I got more in depth on ballistics, minimal barrel wall thickness on your guns when you're buying them. And so I made it to where if you buy these two books, you're going to have a wealth of information that good luck ever buying enough books to find it all and the research you'd have to do. Um, Like you said, handy charts, every size of shot you need and choke for different upland game birds, how to convert, you know, your measurement over if you're buying English loads, you know, for the shot weight and the size of the loads, just some neat stuff. And then I did go into, like I said, ballistics and let people know that they don't quite understand how shotguns work and kill. And it's not like a rifle. And I did go under, I really got into the instinctive wing shooting. And the reason why is that's what side-by-sides are all about. That's what you really need in the uplands. And this gun is set up for it because they're made to make you point, not aim. They're quick. Um... They're easy to load and unload, and they're safe. They put your hands in the same plane. Yep. And the balance and feel of them is totally different. So that's why I had to go into instinctive wing shooting. So these guys could buy these guns and be able to shoot them. So I had to cover all this. Um, and I'm not a guy that gives you tons of history. And the stories are so long, you're bored, you're skipping through them. I get right <laughs> to it. Yes. You know? Um, and then I had to have some neat pictures in there everybody wants pictures they want to see what guns i own my guns are in the book what i own and pictures of my hunting store if i'm telling about it to where it all just brings it to life to where you can image it and connect with it so and i i put some neat hand drawings in the second book and just tried to make them different and original and something you'd want to set above your fireplace on the mantle yeah you know yeah yeah, that's cool. It's and I think that's actually a good point that you bring up there that it's the book is it's very distilled information. You know, it's kind of the it's the important information that you're looking for and it's not buried 
and and again, not that not that one is better, but like I'm I'm certain you've read because I know he's one of your one of your favorites, Mike McIntosh. His right. his book that's, Best Guns, you know, that's a deep dive on the history of all kinds of makers and um, totally totally different kind of book than than what you've written. And obviously, Macintosh had a had a special talent for writing. He was like an English you know literary scholar, and that definitely is is shows in a lot of his work. But he also could write write very quippy and and you know to the point magazine articles as well. But um, the 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 traditional side by side books both are, you know, the information is is packed in there, very neatly. Yeah. I would say. Like I went over American Best in my second book, okay, and I did have a chapter on Parkers. I didn't tell the whole history out of, of Parkers. Um, you know who they were married to, what other businesses they own, right, and other stuff they they produced. Okay, I got right to the point. And I talked about my experience with them and what I think their superiorities are or their weaknesses or strengths, whatever. Because yep. I've owned a lot of Parkers, okay? And I've shot. I did the same thing with Fox. I was fair. My experience with shooting Fox guns, my experience with shooting Elsie Smiths, Winchester Model 21s, the Ithacas, what are considered American best, okay? And then I went and I was fair and I went to the English gun. And I said, these are handmade guns. These are on a different level. This is how English guns are made. This is why they're so expensive. And I went into how they're different and how they're made in a chapter. And a lot of people didn't realize it. They're like, oh, okay, I can see why maybe they cost, you know, $75,000. Right, right. And they took forever to make. And to some people, that's what they want because they want the best thing that can possibly be made. Yeah. Um, and so I went into it without digging too deep to bore people or, or to give them information that they didn't uh, need and get right to the point of the nuts and bolts of it on whatever subject I was talking about. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's – I want to say that was probably in Best Guns where I maybe got the most education on. It's it's one of the things that always kind of fascinated, fascinated me about – Double guns in particular and side-by-sides are kind of usually the ones sort of at the forefront of this conversation, at least in my experience. But it, like the the excess and the extravagance of the Victorian era and just, you know, it was, it was all about just like unlimited money and resources that led to sort of the perfection of the side-by-side and, and the double gun. And then you sort of juxtapose that with a little bit later, like what came along in America, say, you know, the Fox Sterling yeah. worth that could be bought in the hardware store. And, yeah. and, you know, so there's, there's a, there's a huge gap between the two as far as like what, what it costs to, to produce one. But the conversation is so interesting because you've got these Fox Sterling worth and these Parker guns that are, you know, still a hundred years later, still serviceable in the field. So it just, it speaks to the quality as a whole of what manufacturers were making really on both sides, you know, of the pond back then. Hey, I totally agree. And your point was spot on because we obviously went through the great depression. Okay. And Americans don't shoot upland game of a way of life. And it's not a royalty thing. Right. Then right. you take a look at, you know, England 
and they're doing some neat things. It started in the late 1920s, like making a two inch 12 bore. Mm -hmm. Well, there's no way we're going to do that in America. Can you imagine them tooling up a factory? Practical, right? (laughs) No, to make a two inch 12 bore that has its belt on a 20 gauge frame and they've got to strike the barrels all down and make this thing weigh what a 28 gauge weighs special ammunition for it and stuff it'd never go over here right but they did need stuff like that for these special people and so that fascinates me and i introduced it in my book i told some people about it because i got a passion for you know two inch 12 bores but um so that's why i had to tell the difference between the american guns and and the english guns and I own them both. I I own several English guns too, but they're not purdies. I can tell you that. I mean, <laughs> I got a nice boss, but uh, which I think is one of the best guns yeah. ever made. But it's cheaper because it's a hammer gun, ah, and it's older. But I told in my book why I think they're some of the best guns ever, and and uh, some of the special things about hammer guns. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just I'm looking at the back cover of uh of part 1 and I forgot this this quote was here from <laughs> my buddy Jerry Havel. The the book is a must read for side-by-side enthusiasts. The chapter on balance was the best. And the the reason I brought that up was because you you mentioned that and I wanted to sort of highlight a couple of things you've talked about with side-by-sides and why they appeal to you as sort of the the upland game bird gun and you've touched on a couple of them, but talk to me about balance and then and then I want to talk about the the hands being um, closer to the to the sighting plane and how that that's different than other guns. But balance first. I'm glad you brought that up because I really think the balance of a properly made side by side is is its biggest virtue. Number one, okay. And um, my first book, like I said, was pretty basic, okay. But my chapter on balance, I've had some top gunsmiths. Some top gun collectors tell me, Doug, that is probably the best, most in-depth chapter on gun balance that I've ever read in any book. Because I didn't just go over just the balance point. There's a lot of things built into a gun that gives it incredible balance and responsiveness, okay, besides just a balance point, okay? So to give you a deep little story leading up to this, um, I just went... This was the first part of October. I went hunting in Wyoming, okay? And we've kind of got to be friends with a special little guy that does some young kid that does some guiding there. Mm. And we go all over and hunt public land wherever the rainfall's been good, and we think the bird numbers are up, okay? So we met him in Wyoming. I guess I won't tell you specifically where, but this is where the numbers are really up on Hungarian partridge and chuckers. Gotcha. And I'd never hunted in this part of Wyoming, and we've gotten to be pretty good friends. And I got out with him, and we were going to hunt. I said, you know, you know, where's your gun? Well, I haven't been bringing a gun because a lot of the guys I've been guiding kind of get, it's about them, and I sure. can't be shooting their birds and this and that. I said, son, I said, do you want to shoot with me today? And he goes, well, I didn't bring my gun. I said, I brought two Churchills. I always bring two guns. That's smart. And, <laughs> well, well, uh this would be really cool to shoot one of author Doug Stewart's guns. He knows my book. So I whip him out and he goes, I got to tell you the truth though. I've never shot a side by side in my life. Okay. And I said, well, here goes your first five minutes of instruction. He's like, man, I don't think I can handle the double triggers. Yeah. 
I said, son, let me tell you what. Let's just shoot it like a single shot. Just grab that first darn trigger. Let's just worry about getting one bird on the ground. Don't even think about it. Yeah. And I said, I don't want you to think about the gun. I said, let's just look at the bird. Let's just mount it and look at the bird, focus on the bird, let it fly. And let it just try to shoot in the line you think the bird's going. Let's not worry about it. Let's just have a good time. I'm carrying one of my guns. Let it go natural. And we mounted it a few times. And he just couldn't believe it was a 12-gauge. Okay. Okay. This is the J. Churchill. So 25-inch barrel, short barrel, like the Churchills yes. were. Yeah. Yep. And I love these guns. They're one of my favorite upland guns. They've got a ton of Q, Qs in them. I mean, it was made by one of the best shooting instructors ever. And he couldn't believe it. This has got to be a 20-gauge. This thing's ridiculous. It's so light. I said, no. Well, what about the shells? And I pulled out some two-and-a-half-inch game boards, and it was an American 7-shot, English 6. I said, this is what you're going to carry, okay? And I just kept going over. I said, quit worrying about it. Just swing it, shoot. I said, just shoot fast. Let the gun do it. So believe it or not, after the first day, this was really hilly country is why I brought these guns. And usually you don't think of Hungarian partridges in the hills. Yeah, right, right. But this is pretty dead gum hilly here. I almost thought I was hunting darn chuckers. <laughs> and, man, I swear to God, almost every other hill we went over had a nice covey of hunts. They were everywhere. And we were shooting uphill and downhill, and it was just crazy. And I got a limit of hunts. And we weren't even at the end of the day. And he goes, you know, he was shooting – good he had shot some birds and shot pretty good he goes yeah i hate to say this but this is about the best i've ever shot <laughs> i've made some shots i don't even remember mounting the gun i don't remember doing anything he goes this bird come coming across up above us and i just knocked it down and he goes you were totally right and i told him once he'd shot a couple birds i said well if you get extra time and you can think about it pulling that back trigger do so and he even did that before the day was under over okay and he loved this gun. He goes, I just can't believe it. This is the best I've ever, this is silly. I said, that's how this is supposed to happen. These guns, you're not even supposed to think about it. You're not supposed to look at them. They're fast. I chose this gun because I knew I was going to be shooting behind me and up and down. I want something light to carry. So the next day came and I said, bring your gun, man. We're going chucker hunt. So we went into some pretty steep hills. This guy got all these rock outcroppings, you know, and we're hunting these darn chuckers. And he had his old pump with him. And we weren't even half the day through, and he goes, I am so sick of carrying this thing. It weighs twice what the gun weighs. He goes, I can't believe I shot better with a darn side-by-side yesterday. He was in shock. He, he, he couldn't believe it. Right. And he said, well, why do you think? And I said, well, I think because – you didn't give a crap and you weren't focusing and trying to aim. Right. Right. You expected to miss and you just shot it mm-hmm. and didn't think about it. Like yep. I told you. Yep. And I said, this Churchill's are built with key factors. It's got a swept comb. I said, they're balanced. What's a swept well. comb? Well, a swept comb is that you'll look at them and think there's something wrong with them because the trigger guard's bent on the bottom of the receiver. And the reason the trigger guard is bent is this, if you have a quarter-inch cast-off, let's say, mm-hmm. it's bent a quarter-inch to match the stock. So Churchill's theory was is your hand was already going to be in the same plane as the rest of the stock, mm. which was very intelligent. And several English makers copied that and started so doing if that. It's, so if it's cast off, the stock is, is pushed out to the right. And so does that mean the trigger guard would then be canted to the right as well? Correct. So, okay, I got gotcha. you. The exact same amount as the stock. Gotcha. So it looks like it's crooked on the bottom of the trigger plate. 
but they're made that way. That's interesting. Okay? And then they got incredible balance, of course. And then the barrels are set back of the receiver a little bit on Churchill's. So when you mount them, your eyes pick up the line of sight quicker. They're closer to your eyes. Hmm. And they got the incredible Churchill rib, which I love because it gets wide at the breech, right? And then it gets yep, narrower. It's narrower to the barrels. Yeah. And I realize everybody's like, oh, it's just to make the barrels look longer. Right. Well, you peer down them. And I know we're not supposed to aim a shotgun. You're supposed to paint it, point it, not even see the rib, right? Mm-hmm. But you pick it up in your peripheral vision, okay? And it still is, it's still a plane you're looking down. And it makes the plane draw your eyes to the object, hmm. okay? So I love the ribs. I swear by them. The guns are light, as I told you. Great balanced, incredible trigger pulls. So it doesn't screw up your timing, so all this has worked into these Churchills, and they're easy to shoot, and it, I just knew it would be a better gun for twisting shots and, and just craziness, you know. And they also, the stock fits good. The shape of the stock is nice. It just, it comes into your shoulder nice, and it's, you can, you know, it comes right up to your chin and isn't sliding around or smacking your chin. And mm. so him, you know, Churchill being a gun designer, I mean, he's a, Obviously, a shooting instructor, world famous, yep. which he's world famous for instinctive wing shooting. And it was called the Churchill Method first, and now we all call it instinctive shooting, but it was a Churchill Method. He perfected it. You know, I got another, you know, thing of my own that I think he got it from Annie Oakley. I think she is the first, okay? <laughs> but that's another story, okay? But anyway, so he designed these guns for that. Unpre-mounted upland bird hunting yeah and now he swears by it and he couldn't believe it and uh it was just fun to see him no that's cool work and that he's a believer from this experience you know i mean you have to imagine if the vast majority of people still that are like most people probably still haven't really shot a side by you know it's still kind of the it's the unusual gun i mean that's a how i always i saw him from time to time when i was younger but it wasn't until i sort of went deeper as as we said earlier in the conversation that I kind of got hooked on the history and and just sort of the exploration of the side by sides in general and now I just I don't know I I just really like a lot of stuff about them which listeners of the show will be very familiar with but I, I it'd be hard to see myself I don't think I've I've hunted with a gun that wasn't a side by side for I don't know other than like maybe turkey hunting or something but it's all my upland bird hunting has been with side by side since I started shooting them five six years. I don't know. I'd, I'd have to go back, but they're just fun. Well, they're they're fun, and 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 I've had to yonder off and try my other guns, you know. But um, I started with a side by side, and I always come yeah four ten right <laughs> yeah yeah. So many exactly. people start with the four ten. <laughs> yeah, and I don't recommend that, of course, but. Yep. Um, they do because they don't want the recoil and they think it's the smallest gauge for a small person. Right. Right. But you, you hit on something about the key factors of the side by side. And I started to say that the balance is incredible. Yeah. Um, what, what, what is incredible balance? Like describe it for me and how do you, and, and to, to also just to kind of like know that not everybody listening shoots a side by side like what just talk about balance as far as like how it applies to a, a gun and what you're looking for doug for for upland hunting all right well 
a lot of people aren't going to agree with me, but I've got some experts that do. And I'm still talking about upland bird hunting, okay? People got to get that through their heads. Yeah. I'm not talking about driven bird hunting. I'm not talking about different clay pigeon sports. Your gun's not mounted. You're walking a lot. You got to shoot fast and instinctive, and you carry your gun a lot, okay? So I want the gun to have a low moment of inertia, mm. okay? That means it takes the least amount of energy to move the gun in different directions and make things happen, okay? So and, and on the tail end of that, it will it will have less inertia to keep it moving, right? Correct. Yeah. And a lot of guys want their guns barrel heavy. They want heavier guns because they say that it'll keep the gun swinging, right? Like on a crossing shot and help them out, which is true, and is arguable on lighter guns and shooting clay pigeon sports. Okay. Mm-hmm. But if you learn to rely on that. It's a cardinal sin because it means you're wanting the gun to do the work for you and you're not shooting the gun the way you're supposed to, okay? When you shoot the gun the way you're supposed to, you're supposed to have the gun start swinging, mount it, and shoot. The gun's moving and swinging and has momentum. You're not allowing, you're not relying on the gun to do it. Right, right. Okay? So you're better off, that I found, to have a balance point no more than four and a quarter inches beyond the front trigger and that's what parker stuck to on their bird guns okay um this one's sitting on my coffee table is at three inches and seven eighths which is even better and we're not talking about heavy waterfowl guns and stuff that would be out to the hinge pin okay right so that's the balance point of the gun and that's what you're going to pivot on and turn the gun from and that's why it's so important to maneuver okay because the weight is closer to the core of your body rather than extend it out on your extremities, okay? Yeah. So the gun will be faster. The gun will be easier to carry and feel lighter in the field. Mm -hmm. And you're going to be able to mount it faster. A lot of great things. I think that's maybe the most noticeable thing when the the balance point moves closer to the front trigger, sort of, I think some folks will say, sort of between the hands balance. That's correct. Like you're saying, that's what gives it... The that more lively feeling. Those guns tend to feel livelier. That's how I would describe it. Versus if you got something that's real butt heavy or real barrel heavy, it's going to take on a different feel. A totally different feel, and it makes a difference when you're trying to mount it quickly. Yeah, change directions with it. Okay. Right. And um, which like so talk about like important. you know cup rising coveys and stuff. I mean, you're you're yeah. shooting two different dire- that kind of stuff. Well, anybody that hunts woodcock and grouse, if you're not fast, you got a little window to shoot through. If you're not fast, you're done. Yeah. Okay. And you're not going to be shooting perfect when you're in a standing pile of popples and you're crashing through them, right? That's for sure. <laughs> um, you you got a split second to shoot. And this is what's famous with these side-by-sides, of course, right? And so I, I don't like that other John on all the other upland bird guns I shoot. And a lot of people say it's got to be hinge pin balance, which is a general sentence. But let's take a a Winchester Model 21, for example. It's got a long frame. And your hinge pin is literally out there way too far. So 
it's better to take a measurement and more proper from the front trigger. Yeah. I, I like that, okay. that distinction in, in your book because that, I don't know that I had really thought about, I had heard that thing. It's a, it's a broad generalization, a sweeping statement, yes. which of which the shotgun and shooting world, you know, it's full of those broad generalizations, that whole hinge pin balance thing. Like it might be right for one gun, but it might be wrong for another gun. And that's exactly what you're describing here because not every gun is built the same way and the hinge pin is not in the same spot. Well, correct. So that's huge, okay? But then the overall weight of the gun is huge right. for balance. And it's still you want half the weight between your hands and the frame and you want a quarter of it out at your barrels and a quarter of it at the end of the stock. Interesting. Well, well, you can still come up with a balance point and have that weight distributed different. And then it's going to feel clumsy or whippy. Okay, so people aren't thinking about the logic there. And then the other great thing, of course, is, you know, you don't have a tall receiver on yeah. a side-by-side compared to like an over and under or any other gun, obviously. So your hands are in the same plane, meaning your left hand and your right hand, and they're closer to your eyes. And your eyes are the keys to shooting. Okay, if you can't see it and you can't focus on it, that's not where your shot's going to go. Um, trigger pulls make a difference. The gun needs to go off when you pull the trigger. Crisp and clean. The gun needs to fit comfortable in your hands with smooth lines and, and feel good and not awkward. And be able to wrap your hands around the barrel instead of some gigantic beaver tail forearm where you can't. Mm. And when you're supposed to be guiding the gun with your left arm, not right. your right one. Right. Okay. Yep. So that poses a problem. So I talked about all these things in a great balanced gun. And when you accomplish them with a gun that fits you good, it's unbelievable how natural it is to shoot, how smooth it is, how quick it is. And you quit thinking about it and things become natural and automatic. And then it's more enjoyable. You kill way more birds. You don't feel all this repercussion of the recoil. I mean, the list goes on. And uh, so you you pick up some good side-by-sides that fit you within reason, obviously, and they feel different. And it's just it's just like any professional. They want a certain, you know, bat playing baseball. They want a certain golf club. Sure. Well, this is no different. And I've learned that. And um, now when I go to the other ones, I'm just like, man, that's just feels horrible <laughs> and i love taking pictures with a beautiful gun you just shot a beautiful you know bird and i you know i've talked to you obviously about the history and, yeah. and the tradition of them so it all means something also very cool very cool well so i think we did we touch on the book one and two enough there to your uh to your liking doug well, I hope so. I mean, I obviously didn't discuss it all because, like you said, there's a lot of stuff. Oh, yeah. Yep. Hidden stuff. I mean, I'll, I go through, like, what I think is a perfect balance load and rye, and I, I go into chokes. Yeah. And and how they're all different and how they're cut yeah. and why I personally don't like screwing chokes. Um, why, why is that? Let's, let's, let's just tackle that one. We won't do them okay. all. Okay. But... <laughs> And I know they're making some thinner choke tubes that are lighter and, and better, but here's the problem is every bore is different. All right. Like a, you know, a 12 gauge is supposed to be a 729. That's the yeah diameter measurement, right? And so many of the newer guns are overboard clear to 740. 
Um, you'll run into 735s. A lot of the older guns are shooting fiber wads, so they're 726, okay? And I measure them all the time, and I see this. So how can you go buy a factory choke tube and say, okay, it's got 10,000s of constriction, so it's got to be an improved cylinder? Well, I don't think so. I don't think so when your bore is 740. Mm. Maybe if your bore was 729. So you don't know what choke you really have, okay? That's interesting. I don't like it, okay? And I also don't like that they have this beautiful parallel cut in them. They don't, okay? And you can't do that properly with a choke tube. So you're going to get better patterns, of course, with one that's, you know, that a gunsmith can cut in there that way. And when you're when you're saying that, just to try to, it's it's one of those things that's it's better visualized. But I think what you're you're alluding to is when you so you've got your bore, which is at say seven two nine, a certain constriction or a certain mm-hmm. di- certain diameter, and then the choke will constrict down from that bore size, and it does that over a certain run of the barrel, say half inch. I'm just throwing out numbers here, and then it will then it will even out and go parallel for another section, say an inch before it, then sometimes they even open up or constrict further, Correct. don't they? Correct. And I talk about all the different chokes and styles and yeah. why the English choose what is the best, of course, and why they do <laughs> in that book. Okay. Well, you're not getting all that. Okay. Well, then it goes south even more because you lose aesthetics because your barrels are real wide at the end of these choke tubes. I mean, they don't Sometimes even touch the they, muzzle. Sometimes they bell out, right? Yeah. Oh, your 12-gauge, you're carrying a 20-gauge, and they're as wide at the muzzles as a 12-gauge. And you've got more weight at the end of the barrel, and you don't want your barrels heavier at the end. Okay, that's what we've talked about balance. That's not good balance on a gun. Right, got it. And you will feel it. And that bothers me, um, and that's why some of these old Damascus guns are incredible because they're obviously were made for shooting black powder, and they're real thick through the chambers, and they got this beautiful sweeping profile. They get thinner and thinner and thinner to the muzzles, and they're lighter at the muzzles. Yeah, so very light at the muzzles, but weight between your hands, like you were talking about so earlier. So you're getting weight between your hands. The yeah. gun's responsive. It's quick. You can mount it quicker. And you don't feel it out there extended from your body, right. okay? Yep. So that gives it kind of a sluggish feel mm-hmm. and not as dynamic and awkward. So that's another one of my, you know, pet peeves about, you know, choke tubes. A little on the dudes that are changing their tubes like crazy out in the field. They're driving you crazy. <laughs> You're like, man, I've got two different chokes in my side-by-side instantly. I'm happy. And you're back at the truck trying to change out chokes because the birds are flushing wild and, and then I really hate it when you got a beautiful gun and they're extended. You see this crazy thing extended out past the muzzles, you know, two inches in this pretty beautiful, expensive gun. Um, so, yeah, I'm just not a big fan of them for yeah. several reasons. And that that gets into the, the personal aesthetics conversation, and obviously people yeah. have varying tastes there. But I, I'm, you know, I'm with, I probably have a tendency to agree with, with a lot of your thoughts on that, but... Yeah, I you know I think I think that's helpful because I mean some of the stuff that we're talking about when it comes to shotguns and shooting, I to use a maybe a cliche term, nuance. Like some of these things are subtle, but 
for me, I'm always driven to try, like, if it's a subtle effect in reality, I'm okay with that. I just want to understand why, you know, why, why the balance or why the weight here, why the weight there. I just think that helps you make more informed decisions by understanding the logic, like you said, behind some of this stuff. And it's, it may be a small or relatively insignificant effect, but just again, driven, driven to understand the the thinking and the theory behind it. I, I, I find that enjoyable, but I also think it's helpful. Well, I'll tell you what, Nick, these new guns that are be put, being built by machines totally, you know, and they've got these, you know, choke tubes and, and really poor hand fitting. I pick them up and I can't believe the gaps between the receiver and the, and the stock. And do you think they're going to be using these guns and they're going to hold up in a hundred years from now? Well, neither you or I will be around to well, to, to see it, but <laughs> I don't I've know. I've been around long enough to watch some of them fail. Yeah, okay, already. Th- that's fair. Yeah, that's fair. And so we're still getting back to craftsmanship that nobody can make uh, anything better than man by hand with time and effort and skill. Okay, no machine is going to replace us, and that is the beauty of these guns that that follow a tradition and they're trying to make the best product they can rather than put out a multi-use tool that can be made cheaply, but to look fancy and, um, neat or whatever you want to say. Sure. Sure. Yeah. That's a difference right there. Gearing up for your next hunt? Check out Ugly Dog Hunting Company for all your dog supply needs. Ugly Dog Hunting carries a full line of products for your bird dog and even some for you. Whether you're looking for dog collars, GPS tracking devices, kennels, beds, leads, training equipment, or first aid supplies, Ugly Dog Hunting carries it and a whole lot more. New owner of the company and friend of the Bird Shop podcast, Mike Nadusky, loves to remind me that while I do hunt with pretty dogs, every dog can be an ugly dog. Check out the entire selection of gear for you and your bird dog at UglyDogHunting.com. For many upland hunters, along with their passion for dogs, birds, and the places we chase them, comes a passion for shotguns. Upland Gun Company specializes in customizing shotguns for the upland bird hunter imported from Italy and shipped direct to an FFL near you. Select from one of their side-by-side or over-under shotgun platforms and customize the fit, function, and aesthetics to your liking. Design and build your next upland hunting shotgun with Upland Gun Company today. Visit uplandguncompany.com. Cool. Well, I think we're at this point in the conversation. I want to switch because I I could keep asking you questions here, but I, I did. Know. I put out a thing on Instagram today and, and asked um, my followers to submit in side-by-side related questions, and we got a bunch. So before I steal anyone's thunder and ask more questions, let's go to the listener or the followers first. We'll cover those questions, and we'll see where that gets us time-wise and if there's anything left that you and I want to chat about, we will do so. But just bear with me here for a second, and I'm going to pull up some of these questions. So, all right, here we go. I'm going to hit you with the first one. Doug, what should I buy next? Oh, okay, i got to read this. What should I buy oh, next man. in 410 or 28 gauge? So at first I thought he was – I thought the this person was asking – 410 or 28 but it says what should i buy next in so it almost it's almost as if they're asking about a like what model of gun but 
Well, that's a pretty broad question. It is I mean, a very broad question. Like. I don't know what they can afford. Right, right. Um, so I'm just going to tell people out there, I went over this in my book, okay, that you get really poor patterns out of a 410. The bore is just too small, okay, and I explain why. If you're going to shoot birds and you don't want the cripples and this and that, game guns start at a 28-gauge. And if the gun's heavy enough and you're shooting light enough loads, you're not going to get crazy recoil at all. And so the, I kind of recommend starting with them. Um, the 410 is fine if you're wanting to shoot squirrels and rabbits and you're trying to avoid even more recoil, right? Yeah. And as far as a gun, man, I, I can tell you a gun that can cost you $500. I can tell you one right. that's going to cost you, you know, $15,000. And I don't know if you want side-by-sides. I don't know what you want. Yeah. Yeah, well, they it's got a, my bias. assumed that they were asking about side by side, so because I did that was in my my uh, my preface there, but but that one, we can't give a better answer just because I I don't fully understand. I didn't have time to to clarify with this person, which I wish I did. Yeah, but I, I apologize, but we're 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 trying, you know. Yes, yeah, all good. Listeners will understand, but I yeah, I I do want to like you sort of you highlighted it there, but. I almost think the fact that the 410 has gotten by with its bore diameter versus what gauge it is, it's almost like it's it's hiding behind its bore right. diameter, you know, because we refer to it as the 410. We refer to everything else as the gauge. The 410 is a, what is it, a 67 and a half gauge or something, Doug? You're technically correct. Yeah, and so it's like if you think about the gap between 12, 16, 20, 28, and then you go all the way down to a 410. And the interesting thing for me is, in the, I know, you know, there's plenty of 410 proponents and fans out there, and it's in the right hands, it's, a, it's an effective tool. But it's just like when it comes to the way that it gets misused as sort of a first gun, and, and it's yeah. like you're so much better off with a 28 gauge because – the difference in the weight and the handling of a typical 28 and a 410, a lot of times they're built on the same frame. So you got the same, you have the same gun essentially, anyway. but ballistically yeah. you have, you don't have nearly the same gun in, in the 410. So you might as well just get the 28 gauge. Yeah. And if this gentleman wants to look at it a little farther, I did cover him in my first book and I had a neat chapter on 410. I went into 410 almost more than anyone. Okay. Yeah. And I talked about how they're going to be effective. And we're talking to, you get it to limit your shots to 20 yards, okay? And how to make it happen. And I do, I know I shouldn't say it, but I got a little hammer 410 that is on a true 410 frame. And you're swinging around a pull stick when you're out there, okay? So I don't shoot as well with it. And you got to practice and know what you're doing. Um, so I went over all that in my first book in a pretty neat way that I think could uh, enlighten him a little bit. I really do. Cool. All right, next one. And this uh, you touched on this a little bit earlier. You, a couple cool tips that I don't know that I had heard it put that way, but tips on using a double trigger, Doug. Okay. Um, the thing is, is people think about it too much, okay? Mm. And they think, oh, I got to get a straight stock because that allows my hand to slide back and hit the other trigger. It's not true. I, my, my gun's a pistol grip sitting here, and I shoot it great, this double trigger, okay? It's your finger that moves. Your hand don't move a muscle. It's your finger. Yep. And the beauty of the double trigger 
is you got an instant choke selection. Nobody's going to sit there and use their selective adjuster in a split second, you know, to change up their choke on their single trigger gun. And this is on two different sears, so it's instantaneous. So I can grab the back trigger if the bird jumps out there wild and have a tighter choke in my left barrel or the front. Yes, you need to go probably shoot 100 rounds at clay pigeons Mm -hmm. with your front, your double triggers, and then do the same thing in your house with snap caps. And next thing you know, you're going to be great with your double triggers. Then you're going to go to a single trigger gun, and you're going to pull your single trigger, and then next thing you know, you're trying to pull the trigger guard. Exactly, yep. So you can train yourself for anything, and the English yeah. have done it forever and proved it. So, and I can go back and forth, and it don't bother me. And how I don't know, but I do. Yeah, I get asked that a lot, just with Upland Gun Company stuff and people building guns and wanting to, you know, they're curious about a double trigger, but they're they're on the fence about it sometimes. And sometimes it's, you know, it's I I made the switch pretty easily. It's just one of those things where you practice it a little bit, and then it becomes second nature. And so it's it's not real helpful to tell somebody that, but I don't think it's a huge hurdle. Like you said, go shoot some clay pigeons and do it in a a pressure free environment. You know, don't go out to sporting clays league or something and don't apply any additional pressure, but it's like what you said, what I appreciated what you said earlier, you're telling the story about the young gentleman you were shooting with or hunting with is treat it like a, don't even worry about the back trigger, just treat it like a single shot. And if you get more time and you get there, you know, not putting pressure on yourself, you can do it. I think anybody could figure it out that way. I do too. And if they would just be willing to pick their gun up every night and shoot some snap caps in it for five minutes, going back and forth with yeah. the triggers in their gun room. Oh my gosh. They, they're a, they'll be a whiz with it. Yeah. And they're more reliable, obviously. You got instant choke selection. So mm. technically you could argue that they're superior, at least in reliability and, choke selection i mean how do you argue that right right yep again one of those things that's sometimes it's debated to no end and while the difference may be relatively insignificant or subtle you can you can make a couple of those points pretty fairly so of course i talked about it in my first book there you go book one and there you go a whole chapter on it (laughs) love it all right so this next one this might be might be another victim here of me not having enough time to confirm. I'm going to read this one anyways. Um, what is your ideal stock configuration? Does it differ with rib type on side-by-side solid rays versus concave? The problem is I don't know if this person is asking about stock dimensions or what do you make of, do you, does anything come to mind if you say, what is your ideal stock configuration? I mean, all I can think of is like grip or stock dimensions. Uh, yeah, I know it, and um, I went over that in my book. And obviously, the traditionalists and the English say you got to have a straight stock mm. because your hands are in the exact same plane. Okay, but I don't know if I so much think it's that big of a deal because I can shoot my little pistol grip guns just as good. Yeah, and they're very comfortable to carry in the field. And I can tell you, my hands are still close to the same plane on my because they're not a big palm swell; it's a small pistol grip. And so I don't make that big a deal of it. I think it's more important that the gun fits you and it comes up, you know, right into your, your cheek and you're just staring right down the barrels. You know, I think that's much more important than the configuration of, you know, a Prince of Wales grip or a pistol grip or a straight grip. Okay. Yeah. Much more important. And uh, so I don't really care about the grip style and I'm not going to get to, you know, English crazy on it because 
I can shoot them all good. Yeah. That's a, that's an interesting point you bring up there. And I think it's one of those things too, where you will see sort of grips debated as far as like, you know, which one performs the best. Like I will say, when I think about grips, I don't really think about the performance of one over the other. I just think like, what do I think looks the best on the gun or like the feel of the best and just kind of knowing like, I'm going to be able to shoot any one of these just fine. So I, it's more like, I don't know if, and again, I don't know if this person that asked the question was actually talking about grip. So apologies if, if it was off base, but the grip thing is just choose which one you like the best really. And, and maybe, maybe they're talking about if the gun has a ventilated rib that's up about above the barrels All right. that maybe you, you could get by with less drop in the stock because of that, which is true. Yeah. And if you're a dude that over grips the pistol grip tight and hard, and you want to steer the gun around with your right hand and you know, you do that. You know, go ahead and get a straight grip gun that's yeah. really thin through the wrist, okay? And you're going to be less likely to do that. Yeah. As, yeah, as a general rule, you want a lot more, and we can say leading hand, you want a lot more leading hand than than trigger hand. You, know, you, you, drive, yep. you drive the gun with your leading hand. Yep. All right, best place to find old double guns. What do you got, Doug? I'm going to have to – I never would have told you this before, but I'm going to have to say Guns in the International. Yeah, it's a pretty good database. The reason why it's the whole United States and it's anybody, when you go to a gun show, they're always too expensive, and you obviously don't get as many guns there either. Right. And, you know, I always liked the old guys before that existed. I went to go to the Shotgun News um, paper, and then Guns International started, you know, in a big newspaper thing. And now that it's online – you can find anything on it, honestly. Yeah. You really can. It's kind of shrunk. It's shrunk the world in a good way yeah. in, in for the most, I, I like to think, I like to sort of think back and think, man, I bet you could, could have got some good deals back when, you know, you couldn't find the price of everything online, but now we've, we've right. got all the information at our fingertips, but it's a great, it's a great place to search and look for stuff. That's for dang sure. It is. Cause they got pictures mm-hmm. that you could zoom in on them and it's still not like holding one. Right. But in my second book, I did go over how to buy a side-by-side. Yeah, that's right. And I went over everything, how to ring the barrels to make sure the ribs aren't loose. I went over looking through cracks on the top and lower tang, how to get a good gun, and what questions to ask these guys before you buy it. Um, So that helps. It really does. Cool. All right. How about uh, recommendations for restoration of classic double guns, Model 21 specifically? You worked with anybody on that kind of stuff, Doug? You know, specifically Model 21s, no, because I don't shoot them, okay? But it seems to me if I had a Model 21 and I'd want to restore it, I'd go to the guys that are making them, which happens to be Galazans, which is Connecticut Shotgun Manufacturing Company. They're making them. Mm. They have all the equipment. They restore them. Um, they got all the parts for them. I think they'd be the best in the world, probably, in my opinion, for a Model 21. Cool. Okay. I'd tell you something different for a Parker Fox, but a Model 21, um, hands down, probably Connecticut. Start, starting point. Yeah, cool. Yep. All right. Best, and we had a couple like this, but best entry-level side-by-side for rookies. So... You can take that a number of different ways, but basically somebody wants to try it, but they're not looking for the $15,000 gun. What uh, what recommendations might you have? 
Oh my gosh, that's really difficult. It is tough. You get into the American guns; they're pretty expensive. They're probably not going to fit you, you know. Um, right, you're talking vintage American stuff. Yeah, yeah. So, and if you're just trying it, you don't want to spend that money. So they've got some deep, different stuff. Like, you know, there's some Dickinsons out there that mm. are amazingly priced, and they're built on true frames, and they're they're pretty traditional little side by sides. Um, they're way more affordable. You're not going to break the bank. So you might want to go like maybe that route. Um, and man, that's pretty hard because I usually don't deal with these guns, but, yeah. um, CZs, I've got a couple of people that are happy with their little CZs. Yeah. I was going to say, we had one other person ask about the best side by side under a thousand dollars, which is a, it's a common question. You see that a lot. And I'll just, I have a, I have a CZ Bob white 28 gauge. That's um, what I'm talking about. Yeah. For, I mean, True for the, grade. for the price point. And the, I like the way that the the Bob White is set up, straight grip, double trigger. You know, it's pretty true to form as far as like the classic side by side game gun. So, if somebody's not looking to spend more than a thousand dollars, I just I just think that's it's really tough to beat that price point for that gun to get a feel for it and see what it's all about. I think you're right, and that's why I yeah I had to agree with you on that, and I would start there. And they're on Guns International for sure. Yep, yep. All right, here's a here's a good one. We've we've talked about this a little bit here, but I'll we'll bring it up again. Swamped Rib versus Standard versus Churchill. Churchill or Swamped for me. So maybe differences between a Swamped Rib and a Churchill. Now, can you, you describe those Swamped versus a Churchill Rib? We talked about the Churchill a little bit earlier. Right. Well. The idea is you're really not supposed to see the rib because if you stare at the rib, you're aiming the gun and you're going to shoot behind the target. You really want to look at the target. Yep. But your peripheral vision picks up some different stuff. And sometimes some guys need it instantaneously to get their eyes set right, okay, more than anything to make sure the stock's in their cheek and they're looking straight in a straight line down the barrels. The swamped rib is down underneath the, the barrels, preferred by the english okay now the churchill rib i really like because uh, you know i practice it with it in the gun room and my eyes pick it up for a minute or fraction of a second i should say and they're neat because they're even heavier up by the frame they get lighter towards the muzzles they're tapered they extend up above it Um, they're file cut on the top so they don't reflect any light I mean, I can name a lot of things, okay? I even think they hold the barrels together better, in my opinion, a hmm. Churchill rib. So I think they're incredible, okay? But some guys don't want to pick that up in their, their sight because then they'll end up focusing on it. And some people want them even higher, you know, and want a ventilated rib, which I would have to argue more is, you know, gentlemen shooting, you know, clay pigeons. Yeah. So it is a personal preference, and if you swear you shoot better with one, then use it. Yeah. But for one expert to come and say one's better, they're not going to be able to because I can name some experts, world-class shooters that use different ribs. Sure. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So let's just use a rib that you personally like, that you think is attractive and you shoot better with. Yeah. Sometimes it's mental. But that isn't important on a gun. It really isn't. The other stuff's more important, and let's focus on your bird and your target. Okay? Yeah. Again, kind of one of those common themes, like all these differences, you know, the 
in the real world, as things play out, they can be pretty subtle. But yep. at, at when you're buying guns or looking at guns, you know, they, these things come up and you got to make decisions on some of this stuff. But um, yeah, well said. This is a good one here from Jay. My Fox top lever is left of center. How do I know when to retire the gun to the mantle? All right. I'm going to tell you the old school way, and I could tell you thousands of an inch with a feeler gun, okay? is the reason people get funny about this is they want their gun to be on face. Mm-hmm. The barrels to the breech, okay? Yeah, barrels tight to the breech, no play, yep. no wobbling no, around. right. And they can wobble on the hinge pin a little bit because somebody carried it open, and they can still be tight on face. So what mm-hmm. you do is you open your gun, you slide a piece of paper in there, shut your gun on that piece of paper. You should not be able to pull that piece of paper out. If you can pull that piece of paper out and look with a little flashlight and stuff and you see, you know, daylight between your barrels and the breech, that gun's off face huh. and needs to be rejoined. Okay? So you're saying, you're saying slide the paper against the, the breech face where the firing pins are and then close the gun? And then close yeah. the gun and okay. you should not be able to slide that piece of paper out. Gotcha. That's the old school way of doing it. Okay. Um, a gunsmith will take a tiny little feeler gauge. And try to dot, drop it in between there, okay? Yeah. A few thousandths of an inch. Well, the other thing on a fox that's interesting is a fox should be able to hold up to the light. And this is, I wouldn't tell you this with other guns, but the barrel flats with the bottom of the water table, you should be able to see a little bit of light. And as the gun wears in, they become tight and against each other. Hmm. And sometimes they're off face once they become against each other. And there should actually be a teeny bit of light there on a fox. If you research foxes, you'll say, oh, my gosh. And that was the room they gave them for wear. Interesting. So the lever is just a general thing. Right, right. Like this Parker right here, my lever is just slightly to the the left of center, just slightly. And this gun's tight as can be. There's not a darn thing wrong with it. I can promise you that. So be more concerned with your barrels being tight against the face of the gun Mm. than you are with a teeny bit of wobble on the hinge pin okay or where the lever is exactly yeah that's a that's a good one and again that one of those things you'll see common um go on guns international look at a bunch of listings and you'll see sellers saying lever is well right of center and what they're telling you there or trying to imply is that the gun is tight on face and as the gun typically it's not the case for all guns as you pointed out the fox has a little bit different lockup that had a single locking mechanism and it was kind of like a curved hook really as i understand it but the the lever moves to the center as the gun sort of shoots and wears in and then if it gets left of center that could be an indication that the gun is loosening up but i will i will also add to that just for the sake of this podcast that if you've if you've got a concern about a gun being loose or potentially ready for the mantle, take it to a, a gunsmith you trust and, and let him tell you that, right? Right, because as many experts know, an English gun, and I just went through this buying some English guns, when you close them, the lever should be in the center. Hmm. And they could be a little to the left. But I just dealt with a gun that the lever was to the right quite a bit. I was like, this gun's been rejoined. Hmm. English don't do that, Okay. And so the gun, and I knew it, and I was talking to a great guy that sells these guns. He goes, Doug, you are right. That gun's been rejoined because I want to know everything that's been done to it. Sure, yep. 
Um, and so I close the gun and it should be tight, not have wobble on it when the gun's closed and the, you know, it's different when it's open and it's just hanging there open. It might have a little wobble on an old gun on the hinge pin and still be fine. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Cool. Here's a, here's another good question. Does a cylinder cylinder choked gun have an application in the uplands? Absolutely. It's, I, <laughs> I had a I'm feeling that was going to be your answer. <laughs> than, I'm using a cylinder choke more than anything now. I mean, it's. I love it. That's another thing with this guy in Wyoming when we were shooting all these Huns and these chuckers. I said, "This that's a skeet one and two choke gun, and he couldn't believe it. He goes, I usually shoot a modified, mm-hmm. and I was dropping them way out there with this thing. I was like, yeah, you don't. Most applications, you don't need a modified. If you want a great woodcock, grouse gun, and quail gun, just shoot cylinder choke. I've never done it myself. I really want to, but like I, I had two guns built this year by RFM for through Up and Gun Company, and yeah, as much as I wanted to go cylinder, cylinder <laughs> fixed, cho- I'm too scared, right? Every, I mean, every, we're all over choked, relatively speaking, but it's just the idea that oh my gosh, I'm going to go all out cylinder, cylinder. I know I could, based on the shots that I take. Like, I feel like I'm kind of a conservative shooter in the grouse woods. Like, I just, I know I'm not shooting at very many birds that could not be killed with a, with a cylinder choke. So I could well, do it. Nick, <laughs> why do you think they're making spreader loads? And, right, and you really right, think you're right. three, four thousands of choking your speed chokes making a difference? Right. <laughs> you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Open it up, man. And you're going to get more birds. And to, with today's ammunition, holy cow. Right. I think it, I was just, I just finished up, um, Michael McIntosh shotguns and shooting volume three, um, which, I mean, I know I don't need to tell you this, but all three of those volume one, two, and three, if you can go find them, go buy them. They're, they're just, uh, they're awesome, awesome books to have on your shelf right next to the traditional side-by-side part one and two, but yeah, cylinder, cylinder choke. That's you would, you would shoot it all day, Doug, for upland hunting. Hey, my old buddy up in Michigan, he's got me shooting vintage um, hammer guns now, and one's even a percussion. It's a 14-bore, and I'm going to tell you, it's cylinder, and I'm shooting black powder out of it, and you'd be surprised where I can kill birds. <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, all right, let's see. <laughs> How do you get used to double triggers? Ha ha. <laughs> we we, we kind of covered that, that one. Yep. <laughs> um, let's see. Okay, thoughts on, and I know that you do this a little bit, thoughts on running different loads in your right and left barrel. I do it all the time, yeah. more often than not, okay? And I love it. I'll shoot the smaller size of shot in my right barrel mm-hmm. um, for my open choke, right? And then I know my second shot's going to be a little further out there, so I want a load that shoots a little tighter with a little larger shot. I do it all the time. Yeah. Yep. Yep fantastic idea um i swear by it and i just did that on all my hunting trips this year so good thought good thought and um it's not crazy yeah uh all right this one kind of plays off uh, one of the other ones but ultimate choke setup for the species you hunt now we did talk about your books and you have a lot of um there there are some charts and tables in there about sort of yep. general choke recommendations for said species and and shot sizes and stuff is there a is there an end-all be-all choke setup that you would go with if we had to say one thing to take on the uplands which i do all the time is skeet one and two okay 
And if people want to know what that is, they go to my first book under the section of barrels. And at the very end of it, I list 12 gauge with a chart, how much constriction it takes to achieve those chokes, 16 gauge, 20, 28. And you will know that like 10 thousandths of constriction in a 12 gauge is an improved seller. And you're going to know that that same thing for a 20 gauge is going to be about 7 thousandths of constriction. I got charts in there for that that people refer to all the time. And so I'm putting it at a skeet one and two, and I have that in my charts as the ultimate. Got it. I, I, I was pulling it up here. Now, when you say, because I know there is some variation on this, when you say skeet one and two, is that also when somebody says skeet light modified? Right. So you've got a skeet choke, which is just above cylinder. Yep. And skeet two is between improved cylinder and a modified. modified. Yeah. So it's, yeah. So, so think yep. of it as a tight improved cylinder. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Okay. And that, that I had, I had heard that before. And that is, I mentioned those two guns that I built that I was afraid to go cylinder, cylinder. I made them skeet light modified because they're fixed choke guns. And I had, okay. I had heard and read that plenty that they, that was kind of uh, a great upland setup. And I mean, I, again, it's one of those things that you, you don't, I haven't done a lot of patterning with those guns yet. Cause I got them right during the season so i i can't really speak to it scientifically or anything but um have been happy with it but i think again the topic of choke is often uh made into a bigger conversation than it really needs to be but right all right here's a good one difference between splinter and beaver tail foreign pros and cons we did touch on that briefly earlier yeah the the splinter forearm is you know don't add the weight to the barrels mm. And it's very sleek and small, and your hands are going to be closer to the barrels and the line of your sight, okay? A beaver tail forearm is larger. It wraps around the barrels, and the whole idea of it is so your hands don't get hot and burnt holding the barrels shooting a lot. Yep. Um, that's, that's supposed to be the advantage of a beaver tail, like if you're shooting tons of clay pigeons or like you're shooting tons of doves. Um, so I don't worry about that. You know, I'll put on a pair of leather gloves or something. I prefer a splinter always. Right, right. For an upland hunting gun, you're typically not yep. shooting so much that the barrels are going to be that hot. And, yeah, I, th- I think you can functionally make some arguments for the splinter. One thing that I like, you know, the beaver tail kind of, it kind of steers you into, again, treating that end like a grip, which is not necessarily what it's supposed to be. It's supposed to hold the barrels on. It's it's something there to kind of fill your hand, but what I like about the splinter forend is that it doesn't steer you into grabbing the barrels at any certain point. It allows you to sort of grab the barrels where you need to grab them to get the balance and the feel of the gun right. So a lot of times for me, that's like the tip of the splinter forend is in yeah. the palm of my hand, and then I'm yeah. grab, grabbing the barrels. I like that because take a look at E.J. Churchill. He wants you to point your finger. Right between the two barrels at your target when you shoot well you can't do that with a beaver tail but you can do it off the tip of your splinter forearm no problem yep yep um so there you go i mean uh aesthetically you don't want to i don't want a two by four hanging below my barrels on a nice sleek side by side you know Right. Yeah, you, you used to see that on, you know, some, they would call it a skeet gun or something and have a big beaver yep. tail foreign because they knew you were shooting high volume and trying to protect the Getting handle. Getting hot barrels. Yep. Yeah, okay. exactly. All right, here's one. 
uh, one to rule them all in the West. Chucker, grouse, quail. What's your pick? Let's just assume he's asking about what gauge should he shoot. I'm going to have to go, and I could bring up, you know, English guns. Like once you go find a super light 12 gauge and stuff, okay? Right. It's a two and a half inch, you know, six pound English gun, but everybody's not going to do that. Right. So I'm going to say a 16 gauge belt on a 20 gauge frame because you're going to get tremendous pattern performance, but the gun's going to be super lightweight mm-hmm. and versatile. So let's just go with a real lightweight 16 gauge with a beautiful, you know, one ounce load. And like if you take a Parker Zero frame, it's built on a 20 gauge frame. Yeah. So it's going to be even lighter than a 20 gauge. Same with a Fox. Fox 16 gauge with number four weight barrels built on the 20 gauge frame is amazing. Yeah. Okay. Built on the same frame. So you've, that, I always, that's a, that's an interesting conversation when you, you build two different gauges on the same frame. It's counterintuitive. I think for a lot of people, the smaller gauge will typically have heavier barrels because you got to have more metal around the chamber section to fill up that said frame. Well, they're higher pressure loads. Yeah. They're just shooting in a 20 gauge and then a 16 gauge. So they got thicker chambers. Yeah. Um, because they're higher pressure loads, and um, a lot of people don't realize that. Um, so yeah, so I would have to say a 16 gauge, a proper 16 gauge, definitely. Sure. Yeah, the old sweetheart of the uplands is 16 gauge. Yep. <laughs> Can't go wrong. Uh, double bead or single bead? Once again, um, it's a preference thing, but I prefer a a single because I don't want to distract my eyes and have my eyes trying to line them up because then I'm aiming instead of pointing. Um, so I don't want it like you're trying to line up two sights on a rifle. Yep. So I prefer a single bead. That's how I had my fox made. Just a single ivory bead. Is that a, the fox from Connecticut, you're saying? It, it is. It's my little 20 gauge because oh, they were going nice. to build it with twin beads. And I said, no, I just want one on the end. Yep. I don't know if I ever talked to you about that before, but that's, yeah. So you went 20 gauge, what length barrels? 29. 29. Oh, beautiful. Grip? Straight. Straight grip double trigger it started out as a double trigger okay and i sent it back and had a uh koski single trigger installed because at the time i was shooting it so much on pheasants and i was wearing these big thick gloves ah and in that little trigger guard i couldn't get it in there got it yep so i went with a single trigger and this was obviously clear back in what 1995 96 so yeah it's got a single trigger and it's pictured in my book I got to go back and look at that. That's, yeah, that's cool. So, yeah, a Connecticut shotgun rebuilt, not rebuilt, but they, they build true Fox shotguns, 20 gauge, 29 inch barrels. That's a dandy. Yeah. Um, all right. Another one here. We've actually, we talked about all these. How important do you find rib style in the field, raised versus swamp, wide versus narrow versus Churchill? You've, you've hit on that a number of times. Okay. Let's see. Oh, we got a bunch more here. Well, you know, if we go too long and I keep keep drinking this bourbon here, I'm going to be giving you some crazy answers. Yeah, we're going to get off the right. wall here. <laughs> um, have you ever heard this? What are some side-by-side misconceptions? Example, left barrel shoots more left, etc. Nope, no way. No. Every gun shoots to the point of aim. Okay, and um, every gun has a single sighting plane, and they're regulated. They're regulated, so they are put in, 
and they're regulated to hit to shoot to the point of aim, both barrels. So that is a myth. Yep. Um, discuss why someone might want a beaver versus splinter. We just hit that one. What gun cleaning products are a must, specifically oils and wood treatment products? Anything there, Doug? You know, uh, I swear by a couple things. I talk about it a little bit in the second book, but um, you got to have a, for some really rough days, if you've done a lot of shooting, you got to have some powder solvent. They all make some great ones now, so I don't really care. But I do like to have a bottle of cleanse oil around always. Because it will cleat the gun, it'll lubricate the gun, you can put it on the wood, you can put it on everything. It won't attract dirt and grime. It's a one it's a do it all oil. Cleanse oil is what it's called. Yep. And I've had problems with other stuff and you won't have problems with cleanse oil. Gotcha. Okay, so everybody's got to have that. Um and you know you the main thing is your gun gets wet out there hunting. Yep. Don't just gob oil on it, okay? Dry it off, mm. and you got to get the gun dry. Yep. And once it's nice and dry and clean, because you don't want to be rubbing dirt in, then you can apply oil. So I never put a gun back in a, a scabbard wet, because it's going to sit in there and rust. Yeah. So, you know, have some stuff with you to wipe it dry. I always carry a towel. I've always got some, you know, some Remington um, silicone rags. After I've dried them, of course. And believe it or not, I bring a cleaning. I've got a wooden one that I just slide right in my gun case with a, um, just to ram it through my barrels with a dry patch in case the inside of my barrels get wet. And they did this year when I was woodcock hunting. So have a few of these supplies with you when you go hunting. You know, yep. be prepared, right? Cool. These next two, we've already answered them, so we won't answer them again, but I'm just going to read them again. Just to, to sort of stress, like people are really interested. So talk chokes, ideal for upland, important to know. Uh, here's a little different take. Important to know if you plan on shooting non-toxic to open them up. Yeah, generally if you're, let's say you're shooting steel or something, you're going to open the chokes more than you would yep. something else. Yeah. Um, and then the other one was briefly discuss the different types of shotgun ribs and why people might choose each, which I just find that in, so many people ask about wow. ribs. I find that surprising. <laughs> Apparently, they're not reading my institute shooting thing, or they're going to realize you're not going to see your rib. <laughs> yes. You know? Well, and that's the main takeaway is, again, don't worry so much about the rib, but okay. I have an old department store side-by-side -side with twist barrels. How can I find out if it's safe to shoot? Well, I can give you the podcast host answer, and that is take it to a qualified gunsmith, <laughs> but... What yes. do you got on that, Doug? The only thing that's going to give you the definitive truth is if it's nitro-proofed and been nitro-proofed and stamped. Mm. And you, Paul, you know, Kirby Hoyt can do it for you. He's got an importing and an exporting license, and they'll shoot it in a proof house. They'll inspect it. They'll measure it. Otherwise, I shoot a lot of Damascus barrels. You need to go by minimal barrel wall thickness. You need to make sure there's no dents into the bore. You, you need to make sure that there's no corrosion and integrity lost in them. And so they need to be examined by a professional that can do this and is going to give you minimal barrel wall thickness. It is going to inspect them with a light. And I can tell you some crazy stories. Um, Damascus is stronger than you think. And um, I had an old guy out there. I was pheasant hunting. 
and this is the first time I showed up at his farm and I met him. I came with a friend that he's family and he goes, let's just go shoot some pigeons. And we didn't find any pheasants. And, and, you know, I got a grain tower and we were shooting pigeons and I could swear to God that something kept hitting me every time he was shooting and he was shooting next to me. It was like somebody was just throwing sand in my face or something. <laughs> and it was an old Damascus Remington and he's, shot at half of his life and we got back down in his house and said let me look at that gun and i got it underneath the lamp and i was looking at that thing and it was corroded and rusted and he had a dead gum dent in the side of the barrel and this dent was clear in the bore and he had been shooting it all these years and it wore a thin spot there i got it in the lamp just right and you could see light clean through the side of the barrel. <laughs> it was spraying powder out of there or something it was spraying powder at it and this guy's shooting his damascus gun this way and um i told him the dangers and he said well why hasn't it blown up and i said well it's taking a path of least resistance right okay. <laughs> so it's going to go out the muzzle and i was shocked it's not bulged Mm. where it comes into the choke section but that's the integrity that's the stuff these professionals are going to look for and then they're going to tell you to still shoot loads in it that the gun was made to shoot which are going to be eight thousand, you know pounds a square inch or less probably mm. yeah so is that that's what you would consider low pressure eight thousand psi less yep yep because that was pretty general with you know black powder loads that they were made for and and I shouldn't say they're made for it because when Parker came out with their twist barrels, they were testing them with the same darn loads, even the nitro proof loads in the early 1900s that they did the steel barrels. Mm. And they'd run them through all the same proof loads. So you just got to be educated. And um, I inspect all mine, but, you know, get a licensed, yeah. you know, gunsmith to do it. Yeah. For sure. Cool. Um, and then that, there was another question. Any concerns with old American Damascus barrels? Tough general topic, I know. So same thing applies there. Um, yep. you, you do need somebody qualified to, if you got any concerns at all, you got to have somebody look at it. But yeah, you, you can find very shootable guns there, right? Oh, absolutely. I had another quick story that you would love. I just sent off a really awesome gun to Skeets which is he's an old guy that he does all the barrel work for all these, you know, gun dealers like Kirby Hoyt. Mm. He knows what he's doing. Okay. He goes, Doug, you're not going to believe this. I know you wanted the choke open up in the left barrel because that barrel is so darn hard. These are Damascus. Okay. He goes, I can't cut it. Wow. He goes, it's just like cutting uh, with my tools, a pair of chrome line barrels. I said, are you kidding wow. me? He goes, no. He goes, I run into this with some Damascus barrels. They're so hard, and they get harder as they get old because they've been shot, and it's like working them. Yeah. Just like when the guys made the barrels, the more they hammered that blank out and the more they worked it, the harder it got Yeah. and the tighter. So people thinking they're all weak, that's not true, and that they're not capable. It's just you've got to have high-quality stuff and stuff that's in great shape that hasn't been tampered with or corroded beyond belief because there is some iron in there, obviously more prone to rust. Yeah. So think about that one for a while. Good deal. All right. We got just a couple more here, Doug. Are box locks and side locks the same in terms of durability and longevity or is one superior? You know, everybody argues it. And of course the English wants to go, you know, side locks. Okay. If you get a high quality gun, 
in a box lock or a side lock, I'm going to put them dead, dead even. Mm. I realize that, um, you know, there's more wood removed in the parts that are, you know, jammed into a lot of box locks, okay? We could argue the head of the stock, but if you get a high-quality box lock, they're durable as heck. And I can say the same for, you know, side locks. So I'm not going to yeah. take one over the other. It's an individual gun issue. Yeah, that's a that's a good and, – and I'm much less an expert than you are in that. But the one thing that I would point out that it's almost not a – or would sort of lead to one side or the other is side locks tend to be kind of higher price point, higher graded guns. Like the, it's more yeah. – it's a more intricate build, so it's more involved. So you kind of have that going on where box locks are – it's a wider spectrum of – quality of gun in the in the world of box locks then side side locks is a much narrower field i guess if that makes sense well it, it is and and i talk about them in my second book yeah english side locks and how they're made in the you know they're intricate and technical and um there's a lot that goes into them yeah. so it's more fine-tuning than it is a, a durability argument yeah and the point there really for the person that has i mean you can find a great gun in either on either side of that yep and i got guns all from in the 1800s i mean many of them i'm shooting them both so yeah cool um touched on this briefly talk about the proper forward hand position we touched on that when we were talking splinter beaver tail but if somebody says hey where do i put my leading hand what would you tell them doug on a side by side well, properly, it's supposed to be extended out a little bit mm-hmm. beyond the splinter forearm, okay? Some guys that are shooting a stock that's a little too far from them are going to extend that left arm even further. And some guys, if the stock's too long, they're going to suck it up closer mm-hmm. to the receiver so they can get the thing mounted. I carry mine about for speed and comfortability when I'm carrying it in the field about in the middle of my forearm. And I've noticed when I mounted it automatically, I just slide it out forward and I point my left finger towards the object. Yep. So then again, I've seen experts grab it in different places. I couldn't believe like, you know, Des Young and hunting with Hank, he wouldn't extend his left arm at all. I couldn't believe how close he held it to the hinge pin when he'd shoot that gun. And he could shoot, as you see, pretty well. Yeah, I, I can't conjure up any images of that, but I'm I'm curious. I'll have to go look that up. But <laughs> I made you think now, didn't I? Yeah, yeah. Like I've got uh, the the two things I would add there are that that you point out, and I think I say this because I've seen a lot of people do gun fittings for open gun company. Do they pick up a side by side tri gun? Maybe it's the first time they've shot a side by side. Maybe not. I would say a far and away the most common thing I see is people grabbing the splinter forend really close to the hinge pin like you're saying because they're kind of treating it like a grip because it's what they're used to with the pumps or the semi-autos or the over-unders that they've shot so they a lot of times people it seems to me like their natural inclination is to grab it closer to the hinge pin than they probably should and and the other thing i would say is kind of building on that is i just I was just read the chapter in, in Macintosh's shotgun shooting book. The way he described, I think, proper forehand position was your you really want to extend your leading hand out 
and and as you're mounting the gun, you're extending your leading hand because you're using that to point at the bird, and yeah. your leading hand is almost fully extended. Your elbow is not locked out; you're not at full extension, but you're you're close, and that's how far out your leading hand should be on the barrels. And then one last thing there that you hit on right away, and this is kind of a cool thing that kind of highlights what you can do with the leading hand is if you slide your hand out further, you can make the stock feel longer. You can make it feel like a gun that has a longer length of pull. And then if you bring your hand in closer, you can kind of shorten it and you can change the way the gun feels by moving your leading hand around. So I would, I would encourage people to go grab your gun and, and move your leading hand around and see how that changes the feel of the gun. Right. And I adjust mine a little cause I've got different older guns with mm-hmm. stock dimensions, of course, but the shooting instructors want you to guide the gun with your left hand. And yep. that's going to encourage you to, if it's extended out, of course. Yep. So that's proper form. And any instructor, like I told you before, a golf instructor, they want you to have good form. Same with shooting instructors. And that encourages good for form and gun handling, having that left arm extended. Hey. So that's the <laughs> true way to do it. You've got barking dogs here. <laughs> Yeah, I'm scared my setters are going to hear them, and then they're going to go off. <laughs> <laughs> it's not the first time it's happened on the Birdshot Podcast. Oh, this makes this real. You know, I like it. <laughs> All right, last one. What is the best place to buy vintage side-by-side shotguns in the upper Midwest? And this question was kind of a joke. This is a friend of mine, and I will selfishly say that right here in my backyard, Duluth, Minnesota, we've got the world-famous Puglisi's Gun Emporium, which is a a darn good place to buy vintage shotguns. You do, and I'm friends with a lot of them, and I do a lot of business, so I don't want to make anybody mad. (laughs) I did name some in my my book yep. just because you've got certain ones that specialize in certain guns like you know some of them not all of them have a license to import you know english guns and stuff so that's why i mentioned the one that does yeah in my the second book but yeah i was go that along was that kirby kirby hoyt there. that you that you mentioned a couple times here on the show kirby hoyt yeah. out of vintage doubles he treats me great he he's got trust me this guy knows what he's doing with english guns yeah i I don't, I've never met Kirby. I haven't talked to him. He's, he's long been, he's been recommended a number of times and I, I should get him on the podcast at some point. I know he's done some other, some other shows. Um, I'll have to take, take you up, up, up on that. But I, I will just say that going on guns international, like you mentioned earlier, Kirby's listings are all on there. Vintage doubles. It's a, he's got a really, really great collection of guns to go and look at. He's, he has the Upland bird hunter in mind when he's importing these guns. So if you're curious about vintage guns and you wanted to go look at stuff, um, he's got his own website, of course, but you can find him on guns international. Great, great collection of guns there to go look at. And he's fair priced. He really is. And I could tell you which dealers to stay away from that are too high priced, which we're not going to do. Yeah, you'd have to personally talk to me. But then there's specific dealers you will learn that specialize more in, you know, American guns. There's some of them that you know love sure. to collect more Parkers. Yep. You know, Kirby just happens to be the English gun guy. Yep. Um, so that's that's something you'll learn on Guns International. You know. Yep. For sure. 
Well, that is a wrap on the questions. And as I expected, that uh, that took plenty of time. We have we have chatted double guns seemingly all evening here, Doug. This has been a, an absolute blast. We're gonna we're gonna wrap up here in just a minute. I want to thank you again, as always, for joining us on the show. This is a it's a fun conversation for me, and I think based on the questions we got in, listeners will certainly enjoy this one. I do want to thank you. Doug has has generously offered to, and I'll have mentioned this in the intro too, but Doug has offered to donate a signed set of the two books the traditional side by side part one and part two to one lucky winner so we will we will give that away in early january we'll draw that winner and i will explain the details on this show and upcoming show so thank you for that doug i i sincerely appreciate it and uh any final thoughts or anything before we conclude here well i want everybody to have a great christmas and um, you can contact me, you know, anytime. Keep your passion alive in the uplands because it's something really special that we still get to enjoy in our country. And we're all thankful for Nick. I'm thankful for you and what you've done. And I appreciate you. And I've met some great, great people. And I want to meet a lot more. And if there's any way I can help and add to it, I'm going to do it. And the future is going to grow. We're going to talk again, and we're going to have fun, and um, I just appreciate every one of you very much. Awesome. Love to hear it, Doug. That's and, it. and Yeah. That's yeah. it. <laughs> thanks, thanks for what you do and have done for, for side-by-sides and keep, keeping the tradition alive. It's a, it's a blast, Doug. You do have a website, right? Where's the best place for people to go to find your contact info, and I can include that in the show notes too. It is um, DougStewartAuthor.com. And that's where people go to buy my books, and they do, they go to Amazon, they go everywhere. But if they go to my website, I'm going to send them from my house, and I'm going to sign them. All right. And any of their any of their requests. Um, so I, I like to have a personal touch with my, you know, the people that are interested for sure. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Doug, we'll hang on just a second. Thank you for joining us on another episode of the Birdshot Podcast. I appreciate it, buddy. I appreciate you, and God bless you all. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Birdshot Podcast presented by Onyx Hunt, Final Rise, and Upland Gun Company. Don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, and share. And if you really love the show and want to contribute above and beyond what you already do by listening, you can sign up at patreon.com forward slash birdshot. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you on the next episode of the Birdshot Podcast. Hey everyone, this is Nick from the Gundog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gundog It Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.